Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Cliffcentral.com. It's another Thursday afternoon. Good afternoon. I am Mabale Molloy. Welcome to it. Over the next hour, you're hanging out with me. It's good to have you joining me. As always, if you'd like to be a part of the conversation, you're more than welcome to give us a call 0861-555-189. Or you can message us straight through to WeChat. Uh, our official account is Cliff Central. Or you can tweet me at cliffcentral.com. Now, to say that today has been a topical day in the news would be an understatement. Um, it all began late last night when uh, news broke that the president of the republic, a.k.a. Jay-Z number one, Zuma, had made the decision to relieve former minister Ntlantlanene of his duties. Word on the street is that he is going to be redeployed to another avenue. And this morning we woke up to economists and analysts uh, pretty much painting a very bleak picture of our current state of the nation. So if you are looking for a bit of a distraction from what has arguably been the number one news story of the day in our country, uh, this afternoon in the second hour of the show, I am going to be um, speaking to the founder and creator of Lady Bits Evenings. Now, Lady Bits is described as a space for ladies to come together and to take back their sexual power. And I imagine all sorts of other powers that we as wonderful women possess. The creator and founder is Tabiso Matlapi. She's going to be joining me in the second hour of the show. But before we get to that, I am... Very excited to welcome onto the show this afternoon, uh, Mr. Basil Manuel. Good afternoon, Basil. Can you hear me? Hello, Basil. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Fantastic, Mr. Manuel. Thank you very much uh, for your time this afternoon. Now, you are the president of the National Professional Teachers Organization in South Africa. But let me begin by asking you to give us a brief background uh, on your profession and what exactly your job entails. Well, first of all, I'm a a teacher, but I'm also a headmaster of a school. I've been teaching for 32 years as president of NAPTOSA, of course. I lead 70,000 teachers. We are the second largest teacher union in the country, and which makes us an important player in education. And our members are drawn from every single walk of society, as long as you are a member of the teaching profession, from rural schools to deep farm schools to urban schools to the top schools in the country, and also some private schools as well. And, and, and that is the background of Naptoza and myself. All right. Now, Basil, the reason that I, I am happy to have you joining me this afternoon is because earlier this week I came across an article on timeslive.co.za, and the headline of the article is as follows. The country's education system has not prepared parents and pupils for the hopelessness and suicidal thoughts that may follow poor academic results. And I thought now would be a better time than ever, seeing as how a lot of learners in this country have officially wrapped up the academic year. And I am wondering whether or not South African learners are psychologically equipped to deal with the eventuality that the end-of-year results could not be what they expected. And the reason that I have you joining me this afternoon is because uh, you, uh, your name was quoted in this article. And you having your background in teaching and then also being a president of Naptosa. Uh, let me begin then by asking you, do you agree or disagree with the headline of this article that parents and learners are in fact not equipped to deal with the impact of achieving poor academic results from their school year? I agree with the, with the headline, but I think it's a little broader. It's not only about poor results. It's also 
uh, pupils who believe they're underperforming, but actually they are getting exceptional results, but they want to be right at the top. And that also sends them into a dizzy spin. And that is as a result of pressure, either from parents or from their peer group or, or whatever it may be, from the school itself. But certainly our system isn't designed to deal with this. We have not managed to deal with this problem. Basil, you speak of pressure, and I'm wondering where these pressures come from. Are they being uh, put on the pupils by teachers, by their parents? Are pupils perhaps putting these pressures on themselves? And what kind of pressures are we talking about exactly that South African learners are dealing with throughout the year? Uh, Pressures, let us agree, have changed over time. But the one pressure that has remained has been the pressure to pass or to perform. All children, it doesn't matter whether whether it is a top performer or a very average youngster or even an underperformer, they expect to pass at the end of the year. Of course, some of them are self-prepared because they, they know their results throughout the year and they know that the chances of passing are unlikely, but they still hold out, out hope. It is those youngsters who are working, who are trying their best, but their best is not good enough for the academic system that we have in place. And as a result, they fall under the bar. So the pressures brought to bear by society at large, the schooling system itself is a pressurized system. But in addition to that, we also have parents who try and live their lives through their children, irrespective of the ability of children, whether they're academic or not, is not of consequence to a lot of parents. And pressure is brought to bear there. Uh, parents put their children through all sorts of, of extra lessons, etc., and still... If a child has limitations, the limitations will still be there. Those children are then so pressurized and so fearful of coming home with a bad report. Then there's also the absentee parent who's absent because they, they have to work elsewhere, where a child is living with a grandmother or, or, or the extended family. And that parent comes back and wants to see a report card that says I've passed. And that adds a huge pressure to a child. And the parent has never realized throughout the year that this child has actually been getting report cards that don't reflect performance. So those pressures are there from society, from within the school, and from the child themselves. Now, Basil, when one criticizes our education system, um, our very low pass rate comes into question. And as far as I can remember, it's just a little bit over 30%. Per- 30%. You're more than welcome to correct me. So yeah. what if one argues, but what pressure are you talking about if so little is actually required from our students in this country to pass? To pass? Well, look, it, that's an oversimplification. With, with the greatest respect, I think that sometimes, in, especially in the printed media, it's very easy to print something that people can identify with, and the 30% thing has been bandied around. But when you, if you go and pick up any document on promotion and progression, certainly it is more than 30% that is required to pass. However, when it comes to the matric results, there are passes at various levels, and the minimum level being a 30%. Now, it is not uh, pupils don't achieve at the minimum only to pass. The vast majority achieve much more than that. So, yes, the pressure is much greater than the 30%. But I, I, I do have to also qualify this and say uh, it is the absence of sufficient intervention which mm. adds the pressure. 
Okay, well, well, let's elaborate more on this. I mean, in, in your opinion, what is being done in the form of resources and in the form of services being made, being made available to students to help them deal with this pressure, if anything at all? Well, that's where the big problem lies. I do not believe my union, Naptoza, does not believe that sufficient is being done. We all agree that there are more than one type of school in the country. Forget uh, uh, naming them former Model C and former this, but your former Model C school who may be, that may be a little better off in terms of finances are able to employ counsellors that could actually deal with these children. So money, once again, comes into play, deals with children's problems and the various problems they may exhibit. They may not catch every uh, child that, that is exhibiting depression and which could lead, heaven forbid, to suicide, as we have seen. But they have some form of a system. But they make up a small a minuscule percentage of the number of schools in the country. It's the other schools that I'm making reference to, where there is no such uh, service available. The education departments have itinerant services, uh, psychological services, that service where one psychologist services 50, 60 schools. Now, it's almost impossible to pick up every child or to follow closely the... uh, the, the, the behavior being exhibited by the child. As a result, those children fall through the cracks. So the bottom line is it's under-resourcing. No provision is made for teacher counselors at schools where intervention is best needed. And let me qualify this further. It is not only about depression from academic results, but academic results may be the last straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back. It is pressures such as home conditions and and, um, the conditions within society at large and also uh, the very pressures of of just being a youngster uh, today, a teenager today. Uh, Add to that the pressure of passing or failing and then you see that we desperately need counsellors. Now we don't have this in our system, we don't have this cohort of teachers any longer because of financial constraints they tell us. Basil, you mentioned suicide, and I imagine that this is on the extreme end of the spectrum as a result of the impact of students feeling under pressure and as a result performing poorly at the end of the academic year. Can you give us an indication of the prevalence of suicide attempts and suicides directly linked to students feeling pressured at school and then also um, attempting suicide as a result of poor year-end results? Can you give us an indication of how prevalent that is? I certainly don't have a, a national uh, fact or figures, but however, I can tell you that every single province has three to five youngsters that attempt or succeed at suicide in an academic year and at this time of year, and that is in itself is far too many. Now, there are many who go unnoticed and undetected because they may have attempted, and this has never been part of the reporting scale. Uh, every year, we come across stories of children having succeeded in committing suicide. And I want to correct once again, not only the poor performers, Mm. but those children who are pressurized to perform better than they are already performing form the larger part of that cohort. So then are South African parents equipped to deal with a child who comes home and says to them, look, mom and dad, I'm feeling pressure from you, from the school, from my environment, are our parents equipped to, to dealing with what they should say to their children 
in terms of minimizing this pressure? The short answer is no. However, there is a longer answer, and the longer answer is with more people having access to to medical aid, as an example, and um, psychologists, psychiatrists being paid by medical aid, this has given a greater number of people uh, access. But remember that, once again, is still a very small fraction. So the greater answer is still no, our parents are not prepared. Parents may not even be aware. One of the... um, the real hard facts of depression is that it is a singular, isolating uh, sickness. It's a condition which you alone face. You don't go about publicizing it, and that's why it is called depression. And children behave quite normally, and very often I myself have been to a home where a child has committed suicide. And the first thing the parents said to me is that, There was nothing wrong with him. He was a happy child. But you don't know what happens behind the facade of the happiness. And that is what makes it so difficult for parents to accept. And then, of course, the eternal questions thereafter. What could I have done? What should I have done? Could I have prevented it? So it's a vicious, vicious cycle, but it has terrible outcomes. And some children simply just back away from school in in its entirety, which is the other unknown factor. We see children dropping out, and we never always know what caused the the dropout rate. It is assumed that the children run to the streets, and it is assumed that children go off where they are unwilling to go to school. But how many of those actually cannot face the rigors of the pressure that comes with the academic cycle? All right, now, Basil, you are quoted in this article on timeslive.co.za as saying that the mental health of pupils is being neglected, and I've heard you mention uh, that that there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned is, for example, a problem with the lack of funding being made available to schools to be able to offer these kinds of psychological services to to students. So let's elaborate more uh, on that. I'm assuming that the majority of schools in South Africa simply cannot afford to have a psychologist on hand to deal with the, the, the mental problems of students. Would I be correct in saying that? Yes, so let me be more specific. Okay. 98% of our schools do not have a, a resident or a, a school psychologist or, or a school counselor on the premises. That is, that is how high the figure is. So certainly, insofar as the mental health of our students is concerned, it is severely neglected. The attempts by the education department, and I can understand those attempts to try and, with broad brush strokes, reach uh, as many children as possible, they haven't been working Mm. because you can't have a single uh, school counselor for 50 schools. 50 schools counts to 50,000 pupils. Nobody can have so many uh, patients. So it is severely neglected, and it is a ticking time bomb because we are missing out on too many things that could very easily have been resolved. Small problems not resolved, small um, uh, issues of, of depression that trigger depression, if they're not resolved early on, become a fixture within the life of the child later. All right. You you mentioned that it is a ticking time bomb. Is this a problem that's been escalating more and more over the years? Yes, and I think it is also geographical. It's area-bound. Some areas 
are, are more disposed to, to more issues that will push children into depression. You, you think, for example, of areas that are, are prone to, to violence, prone to gangsterism, prone, prone to, to drug abuse. Add that uh, dimension of society into the melting pot of all the other things that we've already spoken to, and you can immediately see that in such an area you would expect more children to be exhibiting problems of depression and simply just worry about their parents' safety, worry about their sibling's safety, worry about their own safety, does send you uh, into a state of depression. Add to that the academic rigors that you may not be coping with because your entire uh, concentration can't be on a matter as trivial as schoolwork when your life is at stake. So in some areas, it has simply just risen to proportions that I don't believe we can even handle, even if tomorrow we appoint a counselor at every school. There will still have to be extraordinary intervention. So then realistically speaking, Basil, what do we then do? Because on the one hand, we're dealing with a situation where there simply aren't enough funds coming from the Department of Education to deal with the fact that there's a lack of psychological help available to students in the majority of schools. And then you mention other impacts such as geographical location. Realistically speaking, then, in your opinion, how do we overcome the problem and cater to the needs of the mental health of our young children in this country? Realistically, the problem is is not solvable overnight. However, we've got to start somewhere. And one of the places where we have to start is to include in the post-provisioning model for schools uh, the beginning of a number of school psychologists even if it is to deal with five schools, an itinerant person to deal with a small number of schools. But, but to have an itinerant person dealing with 50 schools is, is like having nobody. So as soon as you get that around, uh, Mabuleng, just picture this one, if I may digress for 30 seconds. Go ahead. We need a psychologist simply just to also assess, help us assess kids, to, to see whether the child is actually coping with a particular academic stream, whether this child needs extraordinary intervention, if the child has a hearing problem or a sight problem or a speech problem. Now, if we don't have those services, uh, a child with a simple sight problem becomes a child who becomes depressed because they think they are not coping with the work, but meanwhile, a pair of spectacles would have sorted it out. All right, Basil, allow me to take the opportunity whilst we still have you on the line to get you to dispense some advice and some wisdom here. You are, in fact, a teacher yourself, and you're very closely um, involved in this very nature. So I've got a question here on our WeChat message. It's from Sebeko. A question for Basil. My brother failed uh, for three times in high school, and my parents have decided to send him to college, and I disagree with that because it's still school. What can he rather do? Does he need a matric to be a success? And what could be going on in his head? Okay, so let's tackle this in pieces. Um, his, his, his parents are now sending him off to college. Uh, Sebeko says he disagrees. What can he rather do? Uh, FET colleges are one of the, 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 the systems that we have out there. We know that the community colleges haven't quite come online yet. It is a method. But, of course, remember, this is a youngster who has, for some reason, not succeeded at school, where there's far more intervention and control. The FET college system has far less control. So I've got to agree with your reader that says, uh, to your listener that says, is this the best route? 
if in a far more controlled environment he wasn't succeeding? How is he going to succeed in an environment where you're left far more to your own devices? Having failed three times, the, the second question is, does he need a matric to be a success? Again, this goes back to all this pressure that is put yeah. on matriculants every year to not only just pass, but, you know, for some of them, it's a case of can you get eight, nine, ten disti- distinctions? So does he need a matric to be a success, Basil? Strictly speaking, nobody needs a piece of paper to be successful. If everybody can be successful in their own right. However, a matric certificate is uh, an access document. It does give you access to that first step on the ladder. It by, by no way makes you a, a success. It by no way means that you will be su- successful, but it, is, it gives you access. And I'm saying, I, I, I do have to say this, Mother Ling, um, for youngsters to fail thrice at, at a high school in a particular phase is not even allowed we, uh, that the, the parent needs to be approaching the education department to say, let's look at our promotion and progression requirements. What interventions have been done? Mm. Because uh, you cannot tell me that sufficient intervention has happened for a youngster to have failed thrice. Uh, so then uh, the other part of the question is what could be going on in, in, in this young uh, learner's head? It, could there be a learning disability of sorts? Uh, what could possibly then be going on? There are so many possibilities, and of course we're now in the realm of speculation. But certainly, yes, uh, there could be some youngsters simply can't write exams. They are some of the best youngsters around, but freeze when it comes to exams. Simple, simple little things where, where with a little bit of intervention, you can counsel them beyond that fear. But also... um, the youngster may not be able to even read properly, mm. uh, read with understanding. You know, reading is one of the greatest disabilities if you cannot do it, because everything that you do in life is about reading. And sometimes it's an intervention as simple as that. But this poor youngster, can you imagine the feeling of hopelessness the third time when all my peers who were 16 years old with me a couple of years ago, are now 19 and out of school, and I'm still sitting in the same place. Finally, absolutely a, a, a recipe for, for hopelessness. Basil, finally, Sbeka wants to know how they as a family can support their brother. And, and again, you know, if you look at most learners and most families in, in our economic situation as a country, uh, there is an absolute minority of, of learners and families that can actually afford to get their children proper psychological help. So then what do, what do you do as a family to support a student who is obviously struggling? I, I at first want to say to this particular family, you are already doing a lot. The fact that you are so concerned says you are in the minority of families that are prepared to stick their neck out and already do something. So that's the first hurdle that you've crossed. The second is uh, a number of the universities have assessment centers where they offer uh, assessments of, of youngsters at a, at a relatively low cost compared to the private assessments that are available out there. But sometimes they are inconveniently located and uh, their times are also inconvenient and you may have to look at some of the private folk out there. But get the youngster assessed. All right, Basil. If you know what you're dealing with, yeah. then you can start tackling the problem. So then let me, let me paint a hypothetical situation of a learner who 
will either get their results or has already received their end of year results and has performed poorly. But next year, they really need to, you know, they need to carry on. They need to get back into being a student and a learner again. So what would you say in terms of advice? What kind of dialogue does this young person need to have with themselves? What do they need to focus on? What do they need to to tell themselves to prepare themselves for a, a new year in 2016, considering that they, they did poorly at the end of 2015? The first question is, what did I do poorly in? Mm. And can I correct it myself? I believe there are three levels of correction. There are those things that you don't need any extraordinary intervention for. The second level is those things that the people that are teaching you can correct immediately because they are within the scope of those people. And then the third level is, I have fallen so far behind in my understanding of a subject like mathematics that the teacher in front of me is concentrating on this year's work. She's not going to go back to three years ago. And then I need intervention beyond where I'm at now. And that is where my parents and my support group comes in. Because sometimes it is about the... The, the levels of the ladder that are missing for me to continue succeeding. So eliminate those things you can correct yourself and work at it. And then secondly, if your teacher is going to help, that is why your teacher is paid for heaven's sake. And that is why your teacher is supposed to be doing their job there. It is to help you as the child. And most teachers, and I, would, I want to say this categorically, most teachers will never turn away a child. And lastly, Basil, um, you, you mentioned earlier that we are sitting on a ticking time bomb in as far as the fact that the mental health of South African learners is being completely neglected in our country. Worst case scenario, what happens when that bomb explodes? What impact does it have on learners? What impact does it have on the education system in our country? Worst case scenario is we start blaming each other. The youngsters start blaming the teachers for not preparing them. Properly. But meanwhile, it's a far bigger, it's a societal problem. And if that time bomb is not addressed, we then sit with, with a whole cohort, uh, almost a generation of youngsters that feels let down by the very society that was supposed to build them up. And this is my biggest fear. And we are seeing some of that already. Basil Manuel is the president of the National Professional Teachers Organization of South Africa. I thank you very much for your time this afternoon. You enjoy the rest of your day. Absolute pleasure. You too. All right. Coming up after this, I am going to be talking to Tabiso Matlabi, who is the founder slash creator slash hostess with the mostess of the Lady Bits Evenings. If you haven't heard of the Lady Bits Evenings, stick around to find out exactly what it's about. Uh, some of it is juicy. Cliffcentral.com. This is Cliffcentral.com. I am the future of South Africa. On my shoulders, I carry the hopes and dreams of generations to come. I'm eager to learn, but even more eager to use my knowledge for good. I know that it's not where I come from, but where I'm going to that really matters. At Sibanya Gold, we believe our youth is worth its weight in gold, which is why we are so committed to developing, nurturing, and grooming our young people into future leaders. Sibanya Gold, we are one. Uncensored, unradio, Yes, indeed, and I'm Mabale Muloy hanging out with you for the next uh, half an hour or so. Now, a couple of months ago, I came across on Twitter, this was on Twitter, I came across a series of tweets which related to an event titled the 
Lady Bits Evenings. And I remember being very intrigued and thinking to myself, goodness, well, what is this all about? And I remember thinking this is something that I need to get more information about, if possible, um, attend. Um, our very good friend, Stavel Mark, who we have interviewed, um, on numerous occasions here on cliffcentral.com was also telling to me, uh, telling me rather about his involvement in the Lady Bits Evenings. So then I got straight into doing my homework and, um, doing a little bit of research and I managed to track down the, uh, creator slash founder slash hostess with the mostest of the Lady Bits Evenings. And I hope I'm correct in saying so. Tabiso Mashabi, good afternoon to you and welcome to cliffcentral.com. Can you hear me? Hi, Mabani. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Tabiso. Now, am I correct in saying that you are the brainchild behind the concept of the Lady Bits Evenings? Evenings. You are. You are indeed right. Okay. So assume that nobody really knows what I'm talking about. D- d- what are the Lady Bits evenings? What do they entail? What are they about? G- give us a story here. Um, so what they are is they are one night in a month where ladies get to come together and talk about issues um, on sex and around sex. And, you know, basically giving women platform to begin to take back their sexual power and own their sex. Now, Tabi, so if I go onto your Facebook page and just read the p- uh, quick paragraph about what Lady Bits is about, and this is what it says, a safe space for ladies to come together and take back their sexual power, uh, to be comfortable in it and exercise that power to the max. I mean, it, it, it all sounds a little bit, you know, sexy and flirtatious and playful and, you know, sensual and that kind of thing. But is there, is there a more serious side to it? I mean, you're talking about women taking back their power, which, as we know, um, is still a huge problem in terms of inequality for women um, in this country and the world. It is. It is. I mean, the nice thing about it is that it can be fun and, and, and you know, sensual, but but you can do that while grappling with the serious issues around it. So one of the examples I always make is that when, when you're a girl and you're born and there's a guy, a boy born at the same time, that society expects you to play down your power all the time. So all the time you grow up, you, you, you are expected and, 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 and socialized to play down your power, whereas the boy um, version of you is being told the exact opposite, that he needs to be powerful, he needs to exert his power and be a man. And so by the time a man and a woman meet in the bedroom, already levels of power are, like, skewed. You know, ladies is, like, way below, and the guy has his up above. And the sad thing is, even on those levels, women continue to give power away in the bedroom because we go into the bedroom with, you know, magazine headlines saying 60 ways to make him go crazy, 60 ways to make him do this. And it's never about what to do for yourself. So then would I be correct in saying then that these events are all about deprogramming the pressures that society puts on how women are meant to think and behave and then also deprogramming the internal dialogue that women have within themselves? Absolutely. With, with that internal dialogue, you know, breaking that internal dialogue being the most important because that is the one thing that holds women back the most. All right, Tabi, so take us back to the very beginning of how the concept of the Lady Bids Evenings was born. Um, so I've been, funny enough is when I got the, the idea to run events around deconstructing these issues, I wanted to, to have issues with events with men. I wanted to do events on black male vulnerability. 
And then I thought, my God, how am I going to get men to talk about that? Mm. And then I thought, you know, um, but the one person that the man has to engage with is a woman, right? And and that perhaps if we start empowering the woman and teach the woman what to expect and empower that woman to go out and expect and, and ask and demand um, that what she wants be heard, that perhaps we can somehow turn this man around. Um, and, and, you know, it's been an, an interesting shift to watch because those women that I've watched, we started in June of this year. So we've had it monthly uh, since June of 2015. And those women that I met at the first session in June and, and I saw at the last session now in November, and they're completely different. And is this an entirely South African concept or is it a spin-off from other existing um, international events of this nature? No, that's a, a totally new thing. It's, I mean, there could be Lady Bits evening somewhere, but I do not know of it. I came up with the name literally the day before I had to send out the invitations. I had to come up with the name, and I thought, Lady Bits, um, Lady Bits Evenings, and then it just went. Now, I do find it in- interesting you mentioned that when the initial concept came about, you were thinking about having a platform for men to come in and open up and talk. And mm, um, mm. I mean, my experience, uh, certainly the way that society defines it, is that it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more difficult to get men to open up and to talk honestly about themselves and about, you know, what they're going through. I, uh, let, let me get your take on that. I mean, re- do you think I mean, that, that it is? That is my finding as well. Yeah. It's my finding as well. And from the experience with the men that I've had, my father included, um, that it's not easy to get men to talk about, you know, let alone themselves, but feelings, you know. And so I thought, you know, that's too huge a task to, to, to take on. I wasn't ready. I, I didn't have the energy. Um, I would still like to get into it, but I wasn't ready then. Um, so I thought women, women are always ready to talk. Um, they, and I thought all they need is a safe space. So that's what we, we provided. And what was driving the need um, in your mind for you to create such a space and such a platform for women to get together in this way? You know, actually, um, just about two weeks ago, um, I'm going to give an example of the kind of conversations that made me want to do this. Yeah. Two weeks, two weeks ago, I went to a wedding. A friend of mine was getting married, and there was a friend there with whom I'd had a fallout, and so I was a bit of uncomfortable being around her. Um, and then so I must have worn my feelings on my face because one girl came to me and said, you don't look all right. Is everything okay? And I said, I know what, it'll be fine. And she said to me, don't worry, you'll find a man. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, that is, and, the, that is the answer to all our problems is finding yeah. a man. <laughs> and then... As, as if that was not bad enough, she starts telling me about what to do the next time I get a boyfriend mm. so that I can keep this guy. And, and, and some of the things she told me included putting things up your JJ to make it tighter for this man. So those conversations yeah. are the reason why I started Lady Bits. Because we, we cannot live in a society where we have women putting things up their vaginas so that they could be tighter or drier or wetter or whatever, you know, because... Yeah. Who, who, why is it about him? Why is it Why is it that you should be creating, your vagina should be an environment for his enjoyment? You know, what about you? So then, Tabi, so if you are, if you are taking on the mission to deprogram this line of thinking, which is still, you know, which is still a big problem with a lot of us as women, you know, we still look at ourselves in relation to, well, how can I be more useful or more beneficial to a man? And how can I get a man to accept me? 
And this is generations of programming. So then what kind of tactics, what is your strategy um, in, in terms of trying to deprogram this way of thinking when you're setting up an event once a month? I mean, how, how do you even begin to tackle this line of thinking? You know, you start with the, the, the most basic issues that women have, you know, confidence in the bedroom. Um, you talk about the stuff. I mean, I realized that a lot of women didn't even know what an orgasm felt like because you could ask someone, like, have you had an orgasm? And they'd be like, yes. You're like, how does it feel? And then they're like, ah, you know, must you know. Mm. And I'm like, mm-hmm, problems, you know. So it's, 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 about, it's about finding those issues. Like, like, have you ever had an orgasm and addressing that? You know, if 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 a woman can can realize that she's able to bring herself to orgasm, um, it's it's going to be easier for her to start saying to someone, "That's not how you do it. This is how I want it done." Okay, so if we're going to talk about women owning and taking back their sexual power, um, some of the time this will involve uh, men because you know, um, unless you're in a in a in a same sex relationship. Um, as a heterosexual woman, uh, sex will usually involve a man. So then my question is, do you then ever have men involved in these evenings and in these chats and conversations? Or is, it, is it purely yeah. just for the girls? It, it's, it's been purely for the girls. There was a suggestion once because we do take suggestions from the, from the guests. And one person did suggest once if we could have guys at the next one. And there was like a mixed uh, feelings around it because some women felt like if there were men there, then they were limited and how deep they could go into their issues. All right. Now, if you, if you um, track how far you've come um, since the inception of the idea of Ladybirds, um, talk to me about the, the turnout and the response. Talk to me about how it has grown over time. And then also talk to me about the future and where you're hoping to take it. How much bigger do you want this, this, this concept to become? Um, the growth has been steady. I mean, we've gone from the first uh, session we had, had about 15 people at it. And our largest um, evening has been 60 people. Mm, mm. So it has grown. It's steady. It's different every every month. It depends on what day of the month is on, the date, you know, payday, all those things. And whether or not it's wedding season and people are all out of town for weddings or if everyone is in town, mm. um, that kind of thing. So the plan for next year is to start, because I've done it solely this year with Dr. Kaling. And so what we want to do next year is to start introducing new um, speakers. So have a new different speaker every month. And we're hoping that the first one that we'll have in February, we will be doing with Kakisam Simango. So we, we want to, because I think we, what we're doing is if it's just me and Dr. Kaling all the time, that the views become rather limited. So what we wanted to do is bring in people from different avenues of these issues, because um, it's broad, um, to bring to come bring a new element to the evenings. All right, Tabi. So if you if you did a quick scan of the the events and the sessions that you've hosted just this year alone, what kind of topics um, have been the most topical in these sessions? And then also the second part to that question is, uh, what does this say about what some of the bigger issues that South African women are actually dealing with and, and, and facing? Um, so the, the biggest um, uh, topic that um, I saw was the one where we discussed taking back your orgasm. Um, this is where women were being taught about, you know, what we like to call clitology. Um, so 
you know, being well-versed in the issues of your kid. Um, and I think with that, I saw an interest that I, w- I didn't expect because I'd sort of imagined in my own head that people knew about this stuff, you know, um, that even if they, they, they weren't that well-versed in it, that they knew something. But it turns out some some of us, like the, the sexual experience has been limited and some have been in, in environments that were not allowing um, freedom. And um, let me see what other one. The one on self-esteem and, and confidence. I found a lot, a lot of women were like just all over it. And even in the last session where I said that people wanted to discuss anything that we discussed um, over the year um, in the last session, the body, the self-esteem and the confidence one came up. A lot of women are struggling with that. All right. Now, this is this is a critical point that you mentioned: uh, self-esteem and self-confidence in in women. And let's let's take it back to earlier stages as young girls. And let's let's talk to people who are raising, uh, who are currently raising young girls. Tabi, so what in your in your opinion, in your mind, are some of the mistakes that parents are making, um, where it would seem that they're not instilling enough self-esteem and enough self-confidence in young girls? Therefore, it cannot result in us producing um, confident women. Um, is it the mm-hmm. role? Is it the mm-hmm. role of the mother? Is it the role of the father? Is it both parents' roles in in different ways? Where would you say parents are perhaps not doing the right thing to make sure that they're raising confident girls and women? Well, one of, one of the first thing that parents do wrong is to leave the sexual educate the sex education of their children in the hands of other people. It's, it's a thing that one needs to take um, a handle on. Children should be learning about sex from the people that love them the most because those people will instill the best values in them. And I think as mothers, it's important to tell our daughters that you are enough. Mm. I think that is the biggest thing you can do is that you alone are enough. Uh, traditionally um, and historically, fathers raising young girls might be thinking, oh, well, it's really not my place to get involved in this kind of thing. I'm going to leave it up to, mo- to the mother. But is there a role for fathers to play here to make sure that they themselves are raising confident girls? You know, my, I, I was raised by my dad alone. My mom died when I was 12. My dad raised us three girls by himself. Okay. And he didn't talk about sex to us. I mean, the only sex education I got from him were, you know, the solicited pamphlets that used to be handed out. He came home with one of them one day and said, here, read. And that was it, right? Um, but what he did talk to us about was that boys did not determine who you were, mm. that he told us, you know. And I think that has changed. It, it changed how, how I think about the world. You know, I, I know that I'm enough. I know that I don't need a man. And, and just by being a solid father figure um, tells a girl that they do not need to run after a man. If if if, if a daughter feels like they're running after their dad, then that just sets a tone for the for the rest of their life. They're running after men, and they're putting things up up their vaginas to keep these men. Now, having a look at your Facebook page, um, I just want to refer to an entry that was posted at the end of November, and it reads mm. as follows. We are so proud of Dr. Tlaling for calling out the horrific manner in which the past two episodes of the Our Perfect Wedding seem to promote rape culture. Of course, this was a big story in the news where there was an episode mm. of um, The Bride and Groom where the groom recounted how he was 28 and his bride was 14 at the time that, that he met her. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of social media reaction to it. Um, so Lady Bits, as far as I understand, is for the ladies. 
So let me yes. ask you this. Um, because now we're talking to grown women. Do you think going forward that there is an urgency, a need to start having these conversations with younger girls, teenage girls, before they become these ladies? Because I don't imagine that you've got 14-year-olds turning up for these sessions. I once a month. Yeah, no, I don't. It, it is. It's very important because what we're doing with Lady Bates is we're hoping that we're talking to women who eventually influence these little girls in their lives. Okay. You know, the young, the younger girls in their lives. But yes, there is, especially around issues of consent, if we're going to go back to the OPW thing, is that I think we, we need to be making sure that all women understand consent around sex. And especially little girls. I mean, do 14-year-olds know that it is illegal for someone to have had sex with them? Even if they feel like they gave into it, but do they understand issues of consent? You know, do they know that um, as, as underage children, someone can be arrested? you know, for, for having sex with them. All right. And then, um, Tabi, so realistically speaking, though, uh, you know, we find ourselves in, in, in a country that has a kind of environment where a lot of young women are hugely disempowered in this country. And a lot of the reasons that they end up in compromised situations is because they are dependent on men. Um I mean, it, it's it's a complicated one because essentially the situation and the environment in which these women find themselves in needs to change. But, you know, if, if you're a young woman and you are finding it difficult, what, I mean, what kind of advice, if anything at all, could you dispense to, to such a woman who's looking at this world and thinking it's a cold, cold world and quite frankly, I need to survive and that's going to take what, whatever it takes, I need to survive. What would you say to such a, such a person? And there are a lot of these women among us. I think the first thing that we need to know is to, is to let go of the shame, you know, because um, I think the society, society shames them. Society understands the socio-economic issues, but they shame them. Um, and I think the first thing they need to, to know is that they, they shouldn't be ashamed and they shouldn't feel guilty, but rather find ways of, of you know, find organizations to belong to, that we need to make more information available to them on where to go, what to do if you find yourself in that kind of situation. It really is sad, but and it is a huge socioeconomic issue that we have in the country that leads um, girls into those situations. Um, can you share with us any uh, proposed plans for Lady Bits evenings in the year to, uh, 2016? Are you guys working hard at um, adding new things, changing up some things? Can you can you tell us what you're thinking, what you're planning in terms of carrying on the season or the series rather in 2016? Yeah, I mean, I found I found that because I have a day job, um, several actually. Um, I, I find it's hard to maintain it um, on a monthly month to month basis. So um, we're looking at doing it bi-monthly now, and we're looking to possibly, you know, align ourselves with brands that will, you know, come on board um, and sponsor the event, and not only that, but kind of, you know, help with information, um, with products, that kind of thing. Ultimately... Just to solidify it as a brand. Ultimately, what would you like your brand to achieve, Tabiso? What, what what would be the ideal situation for you in terms of a woman who attends one of your sessions or maybe several of your sessions? Uh, what what would be the ideal situation in terms of you going back and saying, yes, I accomplished something, I did something good here? What does that outcome look like for you? You know, I think that when you start addressing issues of empowerment um, at, a, at a basic level like sex, I think that once that is achieved, it is, I mean, to think of what, what else women can achieve in their careers, 
once they, they, they believe in their own power. I think if I, if I see more women changing their lives, you know, to be the powerful people that they were meant to be, if they start believing in their own power, that for me will be enough. And then finally, Tabi, so as far as I understand, the um, the events currently um, just running in Johannesburg, and and hopefully we can see uh, we can see this brand grow to uh, to the kind of levels where you know it's it's a it's a national project. Uh, but um, for the time being, it is Joburg based. Um, you can it is Joburg based, okay. but we we're looking at doing an event in Bulugwane with my hometown, so it's easier for me. Um, looking at doing an event in Bulugwane in February as well. Um, and so if we conquer Polukone, then we'll add on another city. Um, but it'll, it'll, it'll take time for us to do a national um, event. And how can people get information in terms of how to be a part of Lady Bits Evenings? Uh, where can people log on to to make sure that they're up to date uh, in terms of your calendar uh, regarding when upcoming events will be? How, where, where can we all where can we find all that information? Um, the information is on the Lady Bits evenings uh, page on Facebook, okay. on my Twitter page at Tabiso Bonita, and email address is ladybitsevenings at gmail.com. Fantastic, Tabiso Maslapi. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. That is the creator, founder, hostess with the mostest of the Lady Bits evenings. Uh, I look forward to being a part of the sessions next year, and uh, good, Thanks, good luck to you name. and your we'll team. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Fantastic. You enjoy the rest of your afternoon. So that is where I am going to wrap it up for this Thursday afternoon. I'm clearing out of the studio, cliffcentral.com. We'll see you again next week. Cliff Central. The revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.